Section 78 of The Man Who Loves by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rim. The Man Who Loves by Victor Hugo. Part 2. Book the Fifth. Chapter 3. An Awakening. No man could pass suddenly from Siberia to Senegal without losing consciousness. Humboldt. The swoon of a man, even of one the most firm and energetic, under the sudden shock of an unexpected stroke of good fortune, is nothing wonderful. A man is knocked down by the unforeseen blow, like an ox by the pole axe. Francis d'Albescola, he who tore from the Turkish ports their iron chains, remained a whole day without consciousness when they made him pope. Now, the stride from a cardinal to a pope is less than that from a mountebank to a peer of England. No shock is so violent as a loss of equilibrium. When Gwynplaine came to himself and opened his eyes, it was night. He was in an armchair in the midst of a large chamber lined throughout with purple velvet over walls ceiling and floor the carpet was velvet standing near him with uncovered head was the fat man in the travelling cloak who had emerged from behind the pillar in the cell at southwark gwynplaine was alone in the chamber with him from the chair by extending his arms he could reach two tables each bearing a branch of six lighted wax candles. On one of these tables there were papers and a casket. On the other, refreshments, a cold fowl, wine, and brandy, served on a silver gilt silver. Through the panes of a high window, reaching from the ceiling to the floor, a semicircle of pillars was to be seen in the clear April night, encircling a courtyard with three gates one very wide, and the other two low. The carriage gate, of great size, was in the middle, on the right, that for equestrian, smaller, on the left, that for foot passengers, stillness. These gates were formed of iron railings with glittering points. A tall piece of sculpture surmounted the central one. The columns were probably in white marble, as well as the pavement of the course, thus producing an effect like snow. And framed in its sheet of flat flags was a mosaic, the pattern of which was vaguely marked in the shadow. This mosaic, when seen by daylight, would no doubt have disclosed to the sight, with much unblazonry and many colors, a gigantic coat of arms in the Florentine fashion. Zigzags of balustrades rose and fell, indicating stairs of terraces. Over the court frowned an immense pile of architecture, now shadowy and vague in the starlight. Intervals of sky, full of stars, marked out clearly the outline of the palace. An enormous roof could be seen with the gable ends vaulted. Garret windows, roofed over like visors. Chimneys like towers, and antiblators 
covered with motionless gods and goddesses. Beyond the colonnade, there played in the shadow one of those fairy fountains in which, as the water falls from basin to basin, it combines the beauty of rain with that of the cascade, and, as if scattering the contents of a jewel box, flings to the wind its diamonds and its pearls as though to divert the statues around. Long rows of windows ranged away, separated by panoplies in relievo, and by busts on small pedestals. On the pinnacles, trophies and morions with plumes cut in stone alternated with statues of heathen deities. In the chamber where Gwynplaine was, on the side opposite the window, was a fireplace as high at the ceiling, and on another under a day, one of those old spacious feudal beds which were reached by a ladder, and where you might sleep lying across. The giant stool of the bed was at its side. A row of armchairs by the walls and a row of ordinary chairs in front of them completed the furniture. The ceiling was domed. A great wood fire in the French fashion blazed in the fireplace. By the richness of the flames, variegated of rose color and green, a judge of such things would have seen that the wood was ash, a great luxury. The room was so large that the branches of candles failed to light it up. Here and there, curtains over doors, falling and swaying, indicated communications with other rooms. The style of the room was altogether that of the reign of James I, a style square and massive, antiquated and magnificent. Like the carpet and the lining of the chamber, the day, the baldaquin, the bed, the stool, the curtains, the mantelpiece, the coverings of the table, the sofas, the chairs, were all of purple velvet. There was no gilding except on the ceiling. Laid on it, at equal distance from the four angles, was a huge round shield of embossed metal, on which sparkled, in dazzling relief, various coats of arms. Amongst the devices, on two blazons, Side by side were to be distinguished the cap of a baron and the coronet of a marquis. Were they of brass or for a silver gilt? You could not tell. They seemed to be of gold. And in the center of this lowly ceiling, like a gloomy and magnificent sky, the gleaming escutcheon was as the dark splendor of a sun shining in the night. The savage, in whom is embodied the free man, is nearly as restless in a palace as in a prison. This magnificent chamber was depressing. So much splendor produces fear. Who could be the inhabitant of this stately palace? To what colossus did all this candeur appertain? Of what lion is this the lair? Gwynplaine, as yet but half awake, was heavy at heart. Where am I? he said. The man who was standing before him answered, You are in your own house, my lord. End of section 78 Recording by Rheim, Paris, France